We'll be in Romans chapter 3 tonight. Perfect. Is there anyone who would be willing uh, to open us up in a word of prayer this evening before we get launched? Fernandre, uh, if we would, go ahead and bow our heads, close our eyes. Amen. So tonight I would like to actually start us out with somewhat of a personal question. Uh, many, if, if not most of you, uh, went through our previous Bible study uh, when we studied out the book of Revelation verse by verse. And so tonight I'm actually going to ask uh, this personal question in hopes that you guys will uh, respond uh, to it. Uh, the, the one thing that I have learned uh, in all of my years of being a believer, uh, being in, in church, one of the best things that we can do is be honest with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, one, because uh, they can hold us accountable. Uh, two, they, they help to, to build camaraderie within the church. And so tonight, the question I, w- I would really start out by asking us uh, and see who's going to be um, the one to jump and answer first. If people could see my private... Uh, spiritual center, uh, center, like if people could see my heart, uh, would they find it consistent or inconsistent with my public external behavior and why? If people could see my private spiritual center, my heart, would they find it consistent or inconsistent with my public external behavior? Now, I'm not asking this question uh, to condemn anyone. I'm asking this question uh, for us to be honest tonight uh, with with each other um, and go. Yeah, go ahead, Amy. I think the people who know me least will find me most consistent. Okay, why is that? Sure, sure. So the people who know you least would probably see the consistency, but the people who know you best, the inconsistency, okay? Anybody else want to add to that? Yeah, go ahead. Do you guys all know who this is, by the way? Not just this is Kim's dad. Do you guys, do you guys know who this is? His name is, sir? Jim Patton. This is Kim's dad, but his name is Jim and this is his lovely wife, General, <laughs> General Patton. <laughs> and this is his lovely wife, Rosalie. The people who know you now would say that your heart is more consistent now than what it used to be. That's great. Does anybody else want to add to that? I thought you were raising your hand, Penny. Nope. I was going to call on you. Yeah, Kim, go ahead. I think, I think I try to do things, you know, like both. And part of that 
little dots in my dot told me to call the dog huh. to follow that behavior, including the crossing that I'm at. That's sure. Right? It, it does this, you know, back to center, back to center, back to center. Sure. Sure. I think it does the same thing to me. Sure. Uh oh. Let's get the scoop. I would agree. I would agree with that from well, Yeah, right. Right. All right. So so tonight we're actually going to be covering a portion of scripture that talks about being justified freely by grace. But before we get there, uh, Paul has to finally cover uh, yet again that there uh, that there are no advantages uh, in being God's chosen nation versus uh, being a Gentile who comes to the faith uh, through that grace. And so if you would just start with me in verse number 1 of chapter 3, and it says this, that then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way to begin with. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now I want to just stop right there. Stop at the end of verse number two. Paul carefully explained in the last chapter that the possession of the law nor circumcision will save uh, a Jewish person. We saw that last week. Now, if this is the case, what, is, what advantage is it of being God's chosen nation? If the law doesn't save you, if circumcision doesn't save you, then what advantage is it essentially in being Jewish? And this is exactly what Paul says out of the gate. Now, Paul knew that there were advantages um, that God gave to the Jewish people. Now, I'm going to explain those, and we're actually going to look at a few of them tonight. In particular, Paul said that he entrusted them with the oracles of God, which speaks of God's written revelation uh, before the time of Jesus. Now, how many of you remember from... Two Sundays ago, uh, what I said to the church about what that word oracle meant. No, not prophecy. The word oracle comes from the Hebrew word meaning something specific. Does anyone remember? No, nope. means burden. The word oracle means burden in the Hebrew. And so he gave to them, or he entrusted the Jews with the burden of sharing the gospel, essentially is, is what Paul is saying. He entrusted them. Now he gave uh, the Jewish people his word, and that to them should have been an indescribable gift. Uh, essentially their prime privilege as his chosen nation was to be what I'm going to call God's library keepers. That's, that's what the Jews were set to do. Now, Paul will explain to us probably five or six weeks from now when we get to Romans chapter 9 that Israel also had adoption 
through God. They had God's glory. They received God's covenant. They were given the law. Uh, They were given to the service of God, and they even received specific promises. Now, all of those things were advantages that came specifically to his chosen nation. Now, we're not going to be probably addressing any of those until we get to chapter 9. So if you have questions about them, um, either hold off or come and see me, and I will write them down to make sure I address them when we get to that chapter. Now look what he says in verse number three because um, he begins to then discuss how Jewish unbelief does not make God wrong. So look at, at verse three. What if some were unfaithful? He's talking about the Jews here. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, he says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, the fact that the Jewish people as a whole to that point had rejected the gospel did not mean that God or that God's faithfulness to the Jews was done in vain at all. It did not mean that God's work was futile or without effect, so to speak, in the world, which is why Paul said, certainly not. Indeed, let every God be true, but every man a liar. Every one, uh, depending on your version, be a liar. So Paul is just reminding uh, the people here, the, the church at Rome, it's reminding the readers that God will be justified in every single one of his actions, meaning that in the end, it will be demonstrated that even our unrighteousness somehow uh, proclaimed God's righteousness and his glory, even if it were only through his judgment. Now, Paul's going to kind of break this down uh, for us, but before uh, we begin to get there, I, wanna, I want you to see and hear a quote by Charles Spurgeon, uh, because I believe that he kind of hit the, the nail on the head when he said, it is a strange strong expression, but it is none too strong. If God says one thing and every man in the world says another, then God is true and all men are false. God speaks the truth and he cannot lie. Uh, For those of you who are writing, I'm going to kind of flip through two more screens because this quote is not done. And so I can give it to you afterwards, okay? God cannot change His word, like himself, are immutable. And that word is a characteristic that is used to describe God, meaning one who's unchanged, or an unchanging God is immutability, okay? We are to believe God's truth if nobody else believes it. Man, do you find that hard sometimes? To believe God's truth even when when every person around you doesn't want to believe it. And the general consensus of opinion is nothing to a Christian, or at least it should be nothing to a Christian. He believes God's word, and he thinks more of that than of the universal opinion of men, meaning that it does not matter what culture says around you. It does not matter what your friends are doing. It does not matter what your, your co-workers and your cousins and your extended, what matters is God's truth, and we should follow that no matter what. There was an objection, though. There was an objection that Paul speaks to in verse number 5 in regards to the unrighteousness of man versus the righteousness of God. And so, uh, for those of you who are writing that, I'll come back to it um, in just a little bit. Now, look at verse 5. It says, But 
if our unrighteousness, now Paul, this can get confusing for those of you who have already kind of read ahead here in the chapter. I've already received some questions like, why did Paul make this statement? Like, why is he now saying these things? And this is, this is Paul's, Paul's uh, imaginary arguer here. And I'm going to mention that again. This is like the people of Paul's days arguing with him uh, in, in regards to what he said already up to this point. And so he, the arguer, so to speak, would say, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Now stop right there. Paul brings this counter-argument uh, of an opponent, of the, the religious leaders or of the unrighteous people, as if to say, if my unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness, how can God judge me? That was the argument uh, of, of those in Rome in that day. It was almost as if to say that my sin ultimately brings uh, glory to God and that is good. That's what they were saying. It was, uh, it was an excuse to continue in sinfulness, which is why Paul will address in Romans chapter 6, uh, should I continue in sin, lest grace would abound? And he says no right after that, and eventually calls himself a wretched sinner. And so Paul is already starting to address those arguments here. Paul was so familiar with that line of thinking uh, that says that God is in control of everything, that even my evil will ultimately demonstrate his righteousness. Therefore, God is unjust if he inflicts wrath on me because I'm just a pawn in his hand. Now, they probably would not have used that language, but in a nutshell, that's what was going on in the culture. So in theory, uh, the most dramatic example of this very thought uh, was found in someone close to Jesus. Does anyone want to take a stab at who that might have been? This same mentality. Like my sinfulness serves to bring God glory and that's good. Judas, thank you. I was hoping somebody was going to get it. I, I could hear, as I was studying this out, I could hear Judas try to make his case before God. Like, Lord, I know that I betrayed Jesus, but you used it for good. Like, in fact, if I had not done what I did, would Jesus have even gone to the cross? And I, I, I see this, and I hear Judas say that Scripture was fulfilled because I betrayed Jesus. So how can you judge me at all? But then I thought about how would God respond? How, if Judas was sitting in the room with me and he made that statement, how would I as a pastor, as a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, how would I respond to that? And my thought was this, well, God used your wickedness, but it was still your wickedness. It wasn't God's. Uh, that's right. That there was no good or pure motive in Judas at all for what he did. And it's no credit to Judas that God brought good out of evil. It was credit to God. And so we still stand guilty before a holy God because of our sinfulness. Even if he uses that sinfulness to bring about his will. We're still guilty. Now, that doesn't mean 
here uh, that, that Paul is, is in any way excusing our sinfulness. In fact, he even says, I speak as a man. I'm speaking as a man, not that he's without inspiration by the Holy Spirit, not that he has lost some apostolic authority that was given to him, but he's saying that as a man, a fallen man at that, would anyone dare truly to question God? Would anyone dare truly? Now Paul begins to answer the objection here in the next couple of verses, and so look what he says. In verse number 6, he goes, By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now Paul begins to dismiss the, the question of his opponent very easily here. Uh, excuse me, if things were such as his opponent suggested, then God was, would be able to judge no one, is what Paul is saying. And if it's true that God will use the unrighteousness of man to accomplish his work and, and bring praise to his name, then Judas's betrayal of Jesus is a perfect example. I mean, nevertheless, the, the, the part of the way that God glorifies himself in man's sin is by righteously judging the unrighteous, right? That's how God brings glory to himself, by, by bringing judgment to the unrighteous? Yes? No? How does God glorify himself through the sins of man? Okay, but what comes out of that perfection? What did we see in all of the book of Revelation from chapter 5 on? Wrath. But that wrath came as a form of just judgment. And, and so God, God glorifies himself by judging the unrighteous. You guys tracking with me? God glorifies himself through the judgment of unrighteous people. You guys tracking with me? My, my misdirection, I guess, is I don't see that God would have us do his work in that. That's, that's where I, that's why I don't. What, what do you mean by that? You don't see a need uh, for God to, to glorify himself. Sure. There's no reason for he gets all the glory regardless. So so then so then let me Yes. Yes. But in bringing his kingdom, what happens to God? What does he receive? And where does that glory come from? Not from man. How can unjust and unrighteous men glorify God? You can't. You're right. You can't. Correct. Correct. 
So who brings about that glory, God or man? Thank you. Yes, yes, thank you. God brings about that glory. Sure. Right. So we we are not we're not righteous to bring about glory. God brings about glory through his son and and through the judgment of unrighteous people. That is according to scripture. I mean this is what Paul is saying. It's not it's not my words. Sure. So, so then let me, uh, hold on, let me stop right there because the, and I'm going to kind of play off of something that you just said, right? So we were given feelings to be able to express certain things and our feelings are not bad, but are our feelings always based on truth? Right. So when we feel something, well, how do we react or we respond? In the spirit, we react or we respond by going back to what is true. And when I counsel people, that's a statement that I ask quite frequently when someone says, I feel this way, or I feel that, or I feel, well, what is true? What is true in that circumstance? What is true in that situation? Because if our, feeling, our feelings are based upon our perception, and our, percep- our perception is often skewed because of our flesh, right? So the, the feeling of how can that be has to come back to the truth. Well, what does God's word teach us? God's word says that God's, God brings about glory through the judgment of the unrighteous upon himself. He's not glorifying man, right? Right? You guys know he's not glorifying man, right? So God himself is who brings about the glory and who receives that glory. God. Yes. You guys good now? So how, how though, will God judge the world? How will God judge the world? That's one, one side, yes. Correct. And in the end, right, where we all face judgment in the end, it's just some judgment is different than the other. And why is that? Someone tell me why that is. What is why is judgment different in the end? Because of the rejection of Christ versus the acceptance. Okay? So Paul and his readers are given that judgment in a specific day was coming, and they were well, well acquainted with the thought of judgment. Paul, being a Jew himself, being a Pharisee, studied out the Old Testament scriptures that they had recorded. So they knew about God's judgment from the Old Testament. He didn't need to contest the point that God was going to judge. It was just simply understood. Completely understood. In fact, Paul understood that God would judge the entire world, not just the Gentiles, but both Jew and Gentile. And for many, uh, many Jews in Paul's day, uh, they figured that God would condemn the Gentiles, but save the Jew in their sin. In fact, Paul even tries to restate the objection here in a different way. If God will glorify himself through my lie, how can he judge me since I seem to indirectly increase his glory with my actions? 
is what Paul says. He even goes on to say, well, let us do evil that good may come, as though the objector would say to him. And essentially, that was a perversion of Paul's teaching on the doctrine of justification by faith. And in fact, it was an extension of the objection to this imaginary questioner, or one who would question Paul and what he was what he was teaching and preaching in that day. Now, if you if you lay everything everything aside and you you take the thinking of Paul's adversary far enough you end up saying let's sin as much as we can so God gives as much glory as we can if you take that objection that far and if you if you even take that thought process and you bring it back to the believer it shows us that that one way to examine scripture is to extend its meaning and consequence and see where it ends up. Uh, of course, let us do evil that good may come was not what Paul was teaching. It was far from it. Uh, but still, it's possible when you look at this scripture to see how the accusation came as Paul freely preached forgiveness and salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, not of works. I, I mean, most Christian preaching. Uh, if you were to look at it today, uh, those who are on TV, those who have large churches, uh, those who have podcasts or YouTube channels, I mean, if you, if you saw the preaching uh, of the gospel here in, uh, in just America alone, most, pre uh, most preaching uh, that's labeled Christian is so far from the true gospel of grace that Paul preached that there was no way anyone could even slanderously report that they taught something different. I mean, if we find ourselves sometimes accused of preaching the gospel that's too much centered on both grace and on wrath and not on works, then we will be in good company with Paul. In fact, we would be in great company with the way that Paul preached. Uh, Paul does not even answer an absurd twisting of the gospel to the people who came to him. He just simply said uh, of those teachers, well, their condemnation is just. Their condemnation is just. That's it. God will rightly condemn anyone who teaches and believes lies. God will condemn the one who twists scripture the one who brings about lies to fit their own agenda. Uh, in fact, twisting the free gift of God in Christ into a supposed license to sin is perhaps the peak of man's depravity uh, here upon the earth. And we're seeing that in our culture uh, right now, unfortunately. Uh, we're seeing it with churches in our own community uh, right now. Um, and it takes the most beautiful gift of God and it perverts it and it mocks it. And that's a really scary, scary place to be. I mean, the Bible that I teach out of says that those who teach and preach will be judged more harshly in the day of judgment. And I'll tell you right now that there are pastors and church leaders uh, that will feel the condemnation of God because of the things that they said. Uh, they led people closer to hell than they did to heaven. And that's a really scary, scary, scary place to be in. Uh, but it's also really a challenge to us uh, who have any form of leadership or any, any form of leading others. And as we learned on Sunday, as a believer in Jesus Christ, everybody's leading somebody. Everybody. And so it's, it's really a challenge to us to ensure uh, that we're not perverting and mocking 
God through our twisting of truth. Uh, I mean, the, the twisting is so sinful that Paul saved it for the last group of people that he was going to address before he even began to dive in to God's grace. I mean, at, at the first chapter, who did we look at in chapter one? Who did Paul address? The pagan. The pagan. Paul addressed the pagan in Romans chapter one. Who did he address in Romans chapter two? Somewhat, but there was a specific group of people. This was the religious people, the, the Pharisees that he addressed. Remember in Romans 1, it was the publicans. Romans 2, it was the Pharisees. And then what did he also do at the end? At the very end of chapter 2, he began to address the hypocrisy of the moralist, the moral individual or the one who said, and then beyond the false confidence of the Jew. And now he's addressing the one who would twist and pervert and mock Scripture. And then he, he goes into the next verse saying that there is universal guilt for all mankind. It doesn't matter what camp you fall in, everybody is guilty before God. So look with me at verse number 9. It says that what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For as we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. And so Paul um, was born a Jew by birth and by heritage. He shares that in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, does anyone remember what tribe Paul came from? Yes, the, the tribe of Benjamin is where Paul came from. And so when, when Paul says we, he's saying we Jews. We Jews are we any better? And the, the point is that by nature, the Jewish person is no more right with God than the pagan or the moralist. In fact, Paul demonstrates that the pagan and the moralist and the Jew are all under sin or under condemnation is what he's speaking. And that, that phrase, under sin, is very powerful that Paul used here. It speaks of slavery. Uh, it literally means sold under sin. Sold under sin. Now, by nature, every person knows what it's like to be a slave to sin, both Jew and Gentile. So look what happens. The Old Testament witnesses uh, to the depravity and the guilt of mankind in the next several verses. And so he says in verse 10, as it is written, no one is righteous. Not one. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lisp, or their lips, sorry, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Anyone uh, studied out the Old Testament in any capacity? Does anyone recognize some of the things that Paul said and where they came from? Yes. These quotations, these specific verses 10 through 18, Paul is pulling right out of Old Testament Scripture, right out of Psalms and Isaiah 59, and he's placing them here to support his opening statement. So all he's doing is pulling from what he already, already knew, 
what the Jews would have already known from what was written and what they would have been taught. These are it. Paul is looking at the human condition from top to bottom is all he's doing with these scriptures. And he begins with the head and he moves all the way down to the feet here. This is what I would call the x-ray study of a lost sinner. The x-ray study from head to foot is the human condition. And to be honest with you, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, if we have compassion for other people, uh, when we see that in Scripture, in my perspective, it's depressing. It's a very depressing thought to think about that very thought. One, because it reminds me of where I used to be. And, and for each one of us in here, it should be a reminder of where we were before Christ saved us. But it should even bring to light the people in our, our circles of influence that are lost. The people that are on their way to hell. And really it should drive us not just to our knees to pray for that soul. But it should, it should drive us to be sharing these truths. Uh, I mean, each and every person in here. Not, it's not just the pastor's job to share the gospel. I mean, I get to on a, a different level or a different capacity than most Christians, but it's not just that the Great Commission didn't come just to me. The Great Commission came to every single person who calls himself a disciple of Jesus Christ. So that means, that means you too. <laughs> like, that means you and you and you and you and you. Like, each one of us. And so it should drive us, really. I mean, the, the, the Apostle Paul wants us to understand our complete inability to save ourselves. And that's what he's sharing here, our inability. And that the fall touches every single part of man's being. And the inventory that he gave us of body parts are corrupted by the fall. And that's what he's demonstrating here. I mean, when God finds none that are righteous, it, it's because there are none. Like none. Uh, do you guys remember what I always say to you? What, is, what does the Greek word all mean? All. The Greek word none means zero. Zilch. Nada. This is what Paul is saying. When God finds no one righteous, there is not a single one. It isn't if God uh, doesn't see someone who's righteous. It's that there is truly no one who is righteous apart from whom? Christ. Yes. Apart from Christ. Well, we, we, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves into thinking that man on his own really does seek after God. If man initiated the search for God, then he's not truly seeking the one true God of the Bible. Instead, he's seeking uh, an idol that he made himself. Um, an idol. And in fact, when Paul wrote here uh, that, that all of these things have all together become unprofitable in some versions or worthless in others, that word worthless... Um, comes from the Greek word ekru, and it means rendered useless, or it's good for nothing. It's good for nothing. Yes. I think I understand what my question was the other day. Okay. 
Yep. If we don't look for what? Yes. And that's what we do on a regular basis. Yes. I was taken aback last session when you said that the people in that time period realized that there was something wrong. And I don't know how it is that they would realize When did I say, are you talking about the very first session? Yes. When I was talking about the God-sized hole that is in yes. all people? Yes. yes. So how do, we, how do we realize that there is something wrong? I didn't say that how, we didn't realize that. I said we would all strive to worship something because we were created as worship beings. Okay. Yep. Dealing with the shit. Right. And at some point, I think I heard you say that the people then at that time were realized that they had a need. Yeah, Seneca. Seneca, the the um, tutor, so to speak, of the Emperor Nero in that day. Um, said that he recognized that man was searching for something, uh, which which is true. I, if you, I mean, if you go back and you if you think about that that very thing, um, man is always going to worship something, whether it is someone or self or something specific, because we were created to worship God. And until we recognize our depravity, until we recognize our sinfulness, right, but, but we cannot recognize sinfulness on our own. Correct. So back to John, go ahead, because I, I want to address this, because what, is, what did John write in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16? I've, I've addressed it maybe a couple of different times. What does John say specifically is the Holy Spirit's role in our life? What is he? Yes. Which is a... Yes. Which is a, a, a doctrine that is, that is skewed by Calvinists uh, that say, uh, that tie in with the doctrine of election, uh, okay? And, and so what, what, what I'm going to pull now from what you said. So John chapter 14 tells us that the Holy Spirit will remind us of all truth. Then in John 16, it says that the Holy Spirit will guide us in all truth. So the recognition of man's sinfulness was not by man's doing. It was by the work of God. 
when man recognizes their depravity, it is not by man's doing, it is by God's doing. It is, is the work of the Holy Spirit in man's life. So the Holy Spirit will, will convict us and does that work in us according to truth. And there's where I have the problem. Okay. Well, because man has to know that he's sinful before a holy God before he can be saved. Yeah. Scripture was very, I mean, we covered, we covered that last week. There are those that don't confess to their sinfulness. Sure, sure, I get that. Well, and that's why we have these conversations right here. That, so, so that things like that come. Do you guys understand where he was, where he was at? You guys tracking with what he was saying? Okay. Yeah. Go ahead, Kim. Yep. So the Holy Spirit still convicts the non-believer to repentance. Right, and, there's, and that's, that's where the... That's where... Oh. All right, we're just going to go there. So that's, that's where um, man's free will... Uh, meets with the sovereignty of God, right? This, this is where uh, there's a fine line where those two doctrines will clash with each other and we have to resolve to believe uh, what, what is taught clearly in Scripture. And so the Holy Spirit convicts man based upon that truth, okay? Even, right, right? So remember in, in chapter 1, no man is without excuse, we saw that in chapter 1. No man, uh, and not just from creation, not just from spoken word, but because of man's consciousness, okay? So that was chapter 1 in, in parts of chapter 2. So man still has the choice to respond to the prompting, to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so that's the way that the Holy Spirit works in the non-believer's life 
in the believer's life, there's still conviction that occurs, correct? You guys still get, hopefully you still get convicted by the Holy Spirit. If not, we have what Paul called a what? A seared, a seared heart or a seared conscience, meaning that we no longer respond to the Holy Spirit. He talked, he talked extensively to the church at Corinth about that very thing. But the, the Holy Spirit still convicts the believer, but in different ways. Still, still to repentance, right? Because the Christian life is a repentant life. We've talked about that in church before. It's just that the way that they learn the truth following, um, and I'm going to use this term very loosely, but enlightening by the Holy Spirit, following salvation is, is different than for the non-believer. You ever heard someone say, I picked up the Bible and read it, and I didn't understand any of it? Have you ever heard somebody say that before? Well, there are a couple of, of reasons why that is. One, they could be not a child of God. That's, that's the biggest one. Because the Holy Spirit will guide us into those truths. Okay? The second one, would, for multiple reasons, could be that they never learned how to study the Word of God. Even as a believer. I've met people who have told me they've been in church for 30 years and they still don't know how to study their Bible. Which is a scary thought to me, uh, but it can happen. It, it truly can happen. Uh, another is that because man's conscience is seared, and so I'm not even listening to the Holy Spirit anyways. And so even if I pick up my Bible um, and, and attempt to read it, I'm not receiving uh, from the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes because they're living in sinfulness and they've rejected truth is, is how you get to a seared conscience. Now, are we good? We're all on the same page? Great. I love that. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Paul begins to list off. Yeah, go ahead. Typically, it's rejection of conviction by the Holy Spirit. So, I'm no longer responding to truth in my life. No, I was listing off things why they wouldn't be able to um uh why people say the statement like I don't understand. Um, because they're either not Christians, they didn't learn how to read and study the Bible, or because they have a seared conscience, would be probably my top three responses as to that one statement in somebody's life. Now, Paul lists off all of these different things, and when he said that they have together become unprofitable or worthless, he's speaking of something that was permanently bad, and therefore it was useless, he even goes on to say that their throat is an open tomb. And he's, all he's doing is just referencing the Psalms. And Paul is, is calling virtually every part of man's body into guilt in some way. The throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, the feet, the eyes. And they're all filled with sin and rebellion against God. And, and when Paul kind of ends up this little section, he kind of wraps it up by saying that their feet are swift to shed blood. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. He's summarizing everything that he just said. He's, he's kind of bookending, so to speak, that every sin and every rebellion against God happens because we do not have the proper respect for God. Uh, like where there is sin in one's life, there is no fear of God. Where there is sin in someone's life, there is no fear 
of God. Well, look with me now at, at verse number 19. Verse number 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable by God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now Paul points out this horrific description of man's utter sinfulness and how that came to us uh, in the law. And it's intended for those um, under the law to silence every critic and to demonstrate the universal guilt of mankind that all the world may become guilty before God. That's what Paul is saying. So if God speaks this way to those who have the law and they attempt to do the law, it is evidence that by the deeds of the law that no flesh will be justified in God's sight. And so Paul is saying, remember that many Jewish people of Paul's day took every passage of the Old Testament describing evil and they applied it only to the Gentiles, not to themselves. Now Paul makes it clear that God is speaking to anyone who is under the law. So he's speaking directly to the Jews in this instance here. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Meaning the law cannot save you. We addressed that last week extensively. Uh, it said the law cannot justify anyone. In fact, Paul said that its usefulness is giving us the knowledge of sin. It is to tell us where we are sin sinners or where we are sinning, but it cannot save us from the wrath of God. So, Since the, the beginning of time, uh, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, uh, people uh, since then have tried to justify themselves by the works or the deeds of the law. I mean, think back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, after Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to make themselves presentable to God by doing what? Yes, by covering themselves up, by making fig leaves or sewing fig leaves together. Uh, I, I believe Job, in, um, I, I believe Job, a, a, like many scholars, uh, say that Job is the oldest book that is written in the Bible. And I believe Job said it accurately when he presented, how can man be righteous before God in Job 9 uh, verse 2? How can man be righteous before God? And God makes part of the answer clear here through Paul. The answer is not in the performance of good works, meaning that it cannot be in the law itself. So from my, uh, my perspective, um, I, I feel that we as, as believers need to deeply understand that thought. Deeply, very, very deeply. That the, by the deeds of the flesh, or by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. Correct, works. He's essentially um, eviscerating a works-based salvation. So, what, what did the Pharisees do? Right. And how many times did the Pharisees question Christ? Multiple, countless times. And how many times, uh, I think back to Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, and how many conversations Christ was very pointed 
with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of that day, because it was all about follow the law, follow the law, follow the law. Right. Right, but the beauty of this is the fact that Paul knew the answer too. And Paul experienced Christ. And so Paul is saying to his Pharisee brothers and sisters, I was one of you. I, I, I memorized all 613 laws. In fact, at one point, Paul calls himself the chief sinner and the Pharisee of Pharisees all in the same. And so he's saying here that the means that the law, having been broken, now can only condemn us. It could never save us because it only points out our sinfulness. Correct. Um, yes and no. I would say Old Testament or Levitical law, Mosaic law, whatever you want to call it or how you want to address it. I, I believe it was given as a standard to the Israelis, uh, to the Israelites. It was given as a standard of how they were to follow God and what certain things were to occur when it came to different sacrifices. And there were specific rules that were set in order to do it and, and why there was a priest and why was there a Levite and why were their jobs separated, but yet they were in partnership. Uh, like, why was that? And so you have to think, by the time the New Testament came uh, and Paul is on the scene writing this, the Pharisees had added to the, the existing law. And they manipulated their interpretations of the law to fit uh, their own agenda of building themselves up to be more righteous than others. Um, I'd have to go back and count, but I, I believe a third or more of it was, um, don't quote me on that, but I believe a third or more of, of the New Testament law. So in Paul's day, when he was a Pharisee, about a third or more of the law had been changed or altered to fit Pharisaical agenda. Which is scary in the least, but yes. Yes, absolutely. The same thing is happening today. Sure. I mean, it's happening in our culture. It's happening in our churches. Uh, I mean, it's happening everywhere. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it, it's, it's kind of scary if we think about it. Uh, I have a, a very good friend of mine who is a pastor um, in a Southern Baptist church. And um, every time I have conversations with him, uh, listen, I don't, I don't dislike Baptists in any way, shape, or form. Um, I came, I spent 10 years in a Baptist church as a pastor. And so, um, but every time I... I talk to him, like he says certain things to me and my mind just flashes with legalism. Legalism. Legal, like I, it just flashes in my, my memory because it brings up all of the wounds of my childhood and in the type of church that I grew up in. And it, like it's, it's scary that, um, that people still have that mentality. Uh, but even in that mentality, they're still not, they're not upholding to the law of the Torah. Uh, why? Because it's wrong to stone your child for being disobedient. Like, we don't do that. 
Um, it's wrong to uh, kill your wife uh, because she talked back to you. Uh, like, we have laws against those things in our country. Um, and there are a lot of uh, Levitical or Mosaic laws that were given that we do not follow. Um, ladies, you would have to have your hair covered. Men, you wouldn't be able to cut your hair. You wouldn't be able to cut your beard, even if you couldn't grow it. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. Um, we don't bring animals uh, into the church for sacrifice. And, I mean, there are certain things that are not followed, and we know for specific, specific reason why. But um, I have Sure. Back before there was written, well, there, there was writing, but Correct. Yes, we are the vehicle. We are the vehicle. Yes. That means that even if we could now begin to perp perfectly keep the law of God, it could not make up for past disobedience or even future disobedience. It doesn't remove present guilt uh, if we could begin to perfectly keep that law. Yes, uh, it was not, the law was just not God's way of salvation. It was just not, it was, it was not even supposed to be the blessing under the new, the new covenant. The, the blessing under the new covenant was to be the shed blood of Jesus Christ and, and the resurrection that occurred. And that's why there's the shift now in, in scripture. When you get to, to 21, we, we're no longer um, Paul's first two and a half or two and three quarters chapters of speaking of the wrath of God, he now begins to talk about this revelation of righteousness that comes through, uh, through grace. And so look with me at verse number 21. And it says, not that chapter, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now, these words here this one specific verse is probably and at least in my sight one of the most glorious transitions from judgment to justification at least in my perspective uh, but now Paul says and he's saying in light of everything that I just said the last two and a half chapters now he's going to speak of the newness of God's work through his son, and this is the new covenant. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, and Paul's reminding us that there is still continuity with God's work in former times. And so I just want to throw this out there to you. If you uh, listen to or read after any pastor that will tell you to stay away from the Old Testament, don't read after them. 
Don't listen to them, okay? There is continuity between everything that happens in the New Testament and everything that happens in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, there was a, uh, a Bible college about three or four years ago that put out every single way that the Old and New Testament were connected. And there were sev- over 72,000 connections between the Old and the New Testament, some in multiple ways to the Old and New Testament. And so Paul is saying there is continuity between what happened in the former years and what's going on now in God's work. And that law cannot save us, but God's now revealing a righteousness that will save us apart from the law. And so he's saying in essence that God's plan of salvation is through whom? Christ, yes, through Jesus Christ. It is a salvation that is offered apart from the law and apart from our own earning and even apart from our own deserving. Uh, at that, the righteousness, though, that, that Paul talks about is not a novelty. It's, it's not something that Paul invented. In fact, it was predicted long ago by those who witnessed the law and the prophets. It was predicted that it would come and the Old Testament... Is, is the history of righteousness coming to pass. That, that's the connectivity to the New Testament. And in fact, it, it's not that the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the Old Testament, but it's revealed apart from the principle of law. Okay, I'm going to explain what I mean. It, it is apart from a legal relationship from God based on the idea of earning and deserving merit before God. And so God's righteousness is not offered to us as something to take up the slack between our ability to keep the law and keep God's perfect standard. And it's not given to supplement our own righteousness. It's given completely apart from our attempt at being righteous. And so look what Paul says about how this righteousness is communicated to man Sorry, guys. Look at how how Paul says in verse 22 that this righteousness is communicated to man. He says that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. If you have a pen, if you are a highlighter in your Bible, I would underline that verse. Uh, when I was a child, I was taught the Romans road. And one of the first verses that we used was the next one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But we skipped over, when I was a child, Romans 3.22, that was crucial to our understanding of 3.23. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Paul is telling us that this saving righteousness does come. He's saying that it is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. All who believe. The righteousness of God. And I'm going to, I don't want to confuse you by what I'm about to say. Okay? So, the righteousness of God is not ours by faith. Now, let me explain. It is ours through faith. Not by faith, but through faith. 
meaning that we do not earn righteousness by our faith. We receive righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Meaning through, through faith points to the fact that faith is not a merit earning salvation. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yes. It, it's no... It, it is no more than means through which the gift is given. Now, faith is not trusting or expecting God to do something. Faith is relying on God's testimony concerning the person of Jesus Christ as his son and through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. I'm going to say that again because it's crucial to, it's crucial, it's crucial to us. Faith is not trusting and expecting God to do something. Many people have that messed up. They think, well, if I have faith, I'm just, I, I, there's an expectation that God is going to do and then fill in the blank. Faith is not expecting God to do something. Faith is relying upon the testimony of God concerning his son and the work of his son. That's what faith is. And after saving faith occurs, the life of trust then begins in the believer's life. That's how that works. And so trust is always looking forward to what God will do, but faith sees what God has already done and believes God's word, having the conviction of that truth for our true selves. Yes, what? Concerning the person of his son and the work of his son. And you know what I mean by work, right? So the death, burial, and resurrection. There is no other way for us to obtain righteousness. than that righteousness is not earned through the obedience of the law. It's received or it's gained by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So look with me at the next two verses because Paul tells us that this is a universal need, but God's universal offer. And it's given, it's given. So verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul begins to develop his teaching about salvation around three specific themes. First, justification. And justification to us was supposed to be the image of the court of law. <clears throat> then redemption. And redemption was supposed to be the image of a slave market. And then the last is propitiation. That's a big churchy word that typically is, is only used in a few versions of the Bible. Um, mainly the King James. <clears throat> but it's a, it's a word or an image of world religion appeasing God through sacrifice. That's what a propitiation is. And I'm going to unpack that word in just a few minutes. So uh, think about it like this. <clears throat> Actually, is there someone who would be willing to give me their definition of justification? What is, what is justification? Sure. Yes, from a, yes, from a biblical sense. 
Nope. <clears throat> That's good. No. I would take aspects or elements of the, the being proven um, as, as what I would say. Uh, the most simplistic way that I would, I would explain justification is the solving of man's problem of guilt before a righteous judge. The solving of man's problem of guilt before a righteous judge. Yes. Yes. I, I believe week one, um, I I kind of covered justification um, in in a nutshell. Uh, I broke it down for us. I'd have to go back and look at my notes specifically, but I believe it was in week number one uh, that I talked about. Yes. It was an image of a court of law. It was or at least it was supposed to be in this sense. What about redemption? How would you explain redemption to somebody? Yes. Yes. It would be the treatment of God as though I had never sinned. Justification. No. Yes, I'm on redemption. She was just reading back to me. Justification. Yes, so how would you explain redemption to somebody? Haha, <laughs> I was hoping somebody would say it. Yes, it's freedom from the slavery of sin would be, would be a, but being set free, that would be a very, very simple explanation to redemption, being set free. Now, the only thing I would maybe say, if you were, if someone asked you specifically or asked you or you, if someone said, um, what is redemption? I would, I would make sure that we specify what, what I'm freedom from what specifically. Now, it may prompt the person to ask the question, uh, but if, I, if someone said, you know, pastor, if someone said, Josh, what is redemption? I, I would say freedom from the slavery of sin. Um, I'm set free. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, Okay. You said, yep, yeah. yes. Yeah. Now, do you guys um, know who the um, Christian artist Big Daddy Weave is? Uh, you ever heard the song, I Am Redeemed? Right? Um, he, he has a, this beautiful picture that he talks about in there, you know, starting out talking about how, you know, um, I, essentially, I, I just, I've been a slave to my sin. People say that I'm not even worthy uh, to come to God. But God says, you know, child, lift up your head uh, because I'm not done with you yet. Now, in, in the bridge of that song, he goes on to say, I don't have to be the old man inside of me uh, because he's long dead and gone. Um, but I have a new name. Um, and I have a new family, and I have a new being inside of me. Why? Because I have been, I've been redeemed. And so redemption, yes, freedom from sin, the, from the slavery of sin, but it, that redemption causes me to be new. 
That redemption in God, right? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.17, what is it? Every, every man who is in Christ is a new creation. All the old things are passed away and all things become new. All things become that redemption. So then the, the big word, propitiation. Propitiation. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the actual Greek meaning here in just a moment uh, once we get to it. But the propitiation solves the problem of offending a holy God. That's, that's what propitiation does for us. It solves the problem of offending a holy God. I mean, Paul said all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And that universal statement was answered by a universal offer of justification freely by God's grace. And so it's open, as Paul says, to anyone who believes. And so it's impossible to describe humanly possible to describe every way that man falls short. I I don't believe that we could possibly describe every single way. But here are are four important ways that man falls short of God's glory. They're not going to hit the screen, uh, so if you want them, I can give them to you. We fail to give God glory that he is due in our words and our thoughts and our actions. We fail to give God glory. That's a way that we fall short. We fail to qualify for and thereby reject the glory and the reward that God gives to faithful servants. We, we fall short of that. We fail to qualify. That's the second way we fall short. We fail to properly reflect God's glory by refusing to be conformed into his image. We fail to reflect. And the last is we fail to obtain the glory of God those are the four ways. Yes, we fail to properly reflect God's glory. You know, being in such a sinful state, the only way we can be justified is to be justified freely, is what Paul said. Like, we, we can't purchase our justification uh, with our good works, and if it isn't made free to us, then we can't have it at all. Um, so if we're justified freely by grace, it's his unmerited favor that is given to us without regards to what we deserve. It, it, it's a, a giving motivated purely by the giver himself and motivated by nothing in the one who receives. That's what Paul is saying, that it's freely given, that it's motivated by God and it has nothing to do with what's inside uh, the person. Now that term freely there in scripture comes from the Greek word Dorian. It's on the screen there. Uh, it's where we get our English word freely. Okay? And it means as a gift or without payment. That's what Paul is saying. That is, is justified freely or justified without payment by his grace. Uh, I believe that the way that this word is used in other New Testament portions of Scripture help us to understand the word a little bit better. Um, if you're a note taker, write down Matthew 10, 8. 
Jesus says, freely you have received, freely give. It's the same word. And then for those of you who went through the Revelation Bible study, Revelation 22, 17. And whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. It shows that this word is truly free. It's not cheap. It's not discounted. It was given as a gift. Perhaps, though, one of the most striking uses of this specific word is John 15, 25. Jesus made a statement that said, They hated me without cause. Without cause is the exact same Greek word as Dorian, freely. Meaning that even though there was nothing in Jesus deserving of man's hatred, there is nothing in us deserving of justification. All of the reasons are in God. That's what Paul is saying. All of them are in God. That through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Paul just begins again to, to center squarely back to Christ. Every time back to Christ. Why? Because salvation is possible because of the redemption that's only found in him. And so God cannot give us righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. um, Meaning that redemption comes from this idea of buying something back. There's a cost that's involved. And so how the death of Jesus satisfied the righteousness of God's judgment is what Paul addresses next. He's like, this is, this is how this works. So look with me at verse number 25 and 26. He says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Who has a different version than what I typically read out of? Okay, Kim, what does yours say, um, whom God put forward as a? Okay, sacrifice is atonement. Is there anyone else who has something different than sacrifice of atonement, propitiation? Anybody? Okay, sacrifice. Yep. Okay. So he says, as a propitiation or a sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sin. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so Jesus, by his death, was a substitute sacrifice for us. As he he was judged in our place, God was able to demonstrate his righteousness in judgment against sin while sparing those who deserve judgment. And so some, some versions translate that propitiation as sacrifice of atonement, some as to take the punishment for our sin. But the word propitiation comes from the Greek word helasterion, meaning atoning sacrifice. Atoning sacrifice. It's a sin offering, but it's on the screens for those of you who are wondering, by which the wrath of God is appeased. Now, as I was studying this out, I found something very unique. Uh, I guess something clicked for the first time for me as I was reading this. Um, I'll wait because I know some of you guys are writing. It's good. Um, Does anyone know what the Septuagint is? 
Have you ever heard the word Septuagint? Yeah, it was, it was the, the Greek. It was the Greek version of the Bible. Um, and in the Septuagint, in, in the Old Testament, the Greek Septuagint, uh, that same word, hilasterion, is used for a, for a specific name um, given to what we call the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Does anyone know what the mercy seat was in the Old Testament? Yes, it was the lid covering the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. Now, uh, does anyone know what happened on the mercy seat? What occurred? What occurred on the mercy seat? I'm sorry? Yes, the sacrifice of blood, or the, the blood would drip from sacrifices uh, as an atonement for sin, and it occurred on the mercy seat. So Paul is, is bringing about really two things for us to recognize. Yes, Christ dying on the cross was an atonement for our sin, or in some senses, Christ was the one who sat on the mercy seat for us. He was the one whose blood was sprinkled upon the Ark of the Covenant, so to speak. Now, what, what was the Ark of the Covenant? Does anyone remember what was in the Ark of the Covenant? Correct, yes. In, yep, so inside the Ark of the Covenant was the Tablet of Laws. Yep. Yep. So the, the budded rod of Aaron, then there was the manna that was received ungratefully, was also there. And all of these things were evidences of man's great sin against God. And they also showed man's rejection of God. So all of the things that were placed inside the ark. Now over the ark of the covenant were the symbols of the holy presence of the enthroned God in the beautiful golden cherubim. That was there. And in between, in between the two cherubim stood the mercy seat. And it was where the sacrificial blood was sprinkled on the day of atonement, which was talked about uh, mostly in the book of Leviticus. Um, has anyone actually studied that out since I challenged you guys to like three months ago? Wow. No, I was just joking, guys. <laughs> Once a year you read through. Oh, yes, the day of atonement. Correct. Correct. Now, God's wrath would be averted upon the Israelites um, because a substitute was slain on behalf of sinners coming by faith to the Ark of the Covenant. And so uh, we, we really can say that Jesus is the believer, the follower of God's mercy seat, standing between guilty sinners and the holiness of God. That he's our mercy seat. And God set forth that mercy seat as our substitute atonement or our payment for sin. And for us, it's that Jesus did not somehow appease a reluctant, unwilling father to hold back his wrath. Instead, God the Father initiated Christ to die on the cross. He gave us the opportunity. And so I'm going to come back to that word forbearance that we looked at a lot last week. God, in his forbearance, passed over the sins 
of the Old Testament saints who trusted in the coming Messiah just like he does today where at the cross those sins were no longer passed over. They were paid for not just for the Old Testament, not just for the sins in the New Testament, for all future sin that was to abound and it was paid for. It was paid for on his son, and the idea is that through the animal sacrifice of the Old Testament, those who looked in faith to come to the Messiah had their sins covered uh, by a sort of an IOU or a promissory note, so to speak, in the Old Testament. And that temporary covering was redeemed for full payment at the cross. And those sins were passed over for a time, but they were finally paid for in Christ. And so God demonstrated his righteousness by offering man justification, by offering us, each one of us. And while, while remaining completely just, he offered justification through the shed blood of Christ. You know, it's easy to see how someone could, could be only just, simply, um, simply send every guilty sinner to hell as a just judge would. I mean, it's easy to see that. And it's easy to see how someone could only be the justifier here in Scripture that Paul talked about, simply telling every guilty sinner, like, I declare your pardon, and you're, you're declared not guilty. But God was the only one who could find a way to be just and justifier at the same time. Why? Why? Because God was... God designed to give the most evident displays of both justice and mercy to people. And his justice required the sacrifice. And in absolutely refusing to give salvation to a lost world in any other way, and his mercy provided the sacrifice for his justice to be satisfied. And so for us... Uh, the only boast that we should have, Paul is going to say, is in Christ. The, the boast of Christ. And so look with me at verse number 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Well, because we're freely justified by grace, there is no room for self-congratulation. There's no room for man credit. Boasting and pridefulness are not excluded because there is some specific passage in the law against them. Instead, boasting and pridefulness is excluded because it's completely incompatible with salvation that was freely given through or by grace through faith. And so boasting and, and pridefulness, yes, they were excluded because of the law, but they were excluded because they, they weren't compatible with God. And so look with me at these last couple of verses. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And so, isn't it that we are justified by faith plus whatever deeds of the law we can do? Yes, thank you. No, the answer is no. We are justified by faith alone apart from the deeds of the law. I just was testing you. I was just testing each and every one of you. Since, yeah, go ahead.
Yes. Yes. Since all the works of the law are barred out, faith alone is left. Faith alone. One of one of my favorite um, giants of the faith, Martin Luther, um, coined a Latin phrase uh, that says, translated, sola. Fide, sola fide. It's not going to come to the screen, but I'll spell it for you. Yes. It's S-O-L-A-F-I-D-E, sola fide. And it's become um, the slogan, so to speak, of what Paul was attempting to minister to the people here and he closes out this portion of his letter by reminding us that righteousness is offered to everyone to Jew to Gentile to white to black to Asian doesn't matter your background doesn't matter how you were raised it doesn't matter what church denomination you came from doesn't matter your past sinfulness that it's freely available to everyone. And if there is only one God, then the God of the Gentiles and the God of the Jews is our God, his same God. Any Jews in here today? Any Gentiles? That would be the rest of you. So if you're not Jewish, that means you're a Gentile. Just, just throwing that out there. That righteousness that's available for the Jew and the Gentile is received the same way as a Jew and a Gentile. And since one God justifies both, he justifies them in the same way by grace through what? Through faith. And so we can see how someone might ask the question that Paul asked, if the law doesn't make us righteous, then what is good? But Paul, you've just made the law void. You're going against the law of God, it almost seems, as he ends this portion of Scripture. But Paul says, certainly not. I'm not making void of the law. And we're going to see in the next chapter the law anticipated the coming gospel of justification by faith apart from the deeds or the works of that law. And, and therefore, in my eyes, the gospel establishes the law fulfilling its own prediction of the coming Messiah. And so I have a, I have a question or two um, before we leave tonight. Um, in, in, the, in verses 9 through 20, Paul said in several different ways that all have sinned. Why do you think he spent so much time establishing all have sinned? Okay, I could see the elements of that for sure. 
Yeah. Because of manipulation, yep, so that yep, so ties in with what Kim was saying. Because of the the Jews thought they, they were more righteous. The law was manipulated by the Pharisees who were Jews. And unteaching. Now, I may ask you a question, because that, and it's not going to be my next question on the screen. We see this movement going on in our culture right now called the deconstruction of Christianity. And the, you guys heard, you guys have heard of that movement? Any, yes? Okay, so the deconstruction of Christianity was essentially the unlearning of what one was taught as a child. Um, and that that's where, that this is, that, that thought is where, and I'm not saying that you were there, so please don't hear that. <laughs> um, no, but that thought, that very thought of I have to unlearn is where the deconstruction movement came from. Um, the, the thinking of I, I can now make scripture my own truth. I can twist it to fit my own agenda. Uh, which then brings about what our culture is seeing ex- extensively as the um, the the belief of relativism: your truth, my tr- truth, her truth, their truth, and we all have to just accept each other's truths because we have a truth, even if it's not based on the truth. Correct, which is where the deconstruction movement goes wrong. <laughs> and so, how do we overcome? How do we overcome that? Those? How do we overcome those things? Right? Because I, I grew up in a church, and I, and I talked to some of you who grew up in in certain certain churches that were very um, legalistic. They taught self righteousness. It was very Pharisaical in the way that we were we were taught. And so how do we, how do we change our perception of, of what we were taught um, into what is true based upon God's word? Sure. I mean, that's, that's the first, the first element is that, yes. But I have a question. Do you believe that if we just pray, Holy Spirit, give us an open mind, that it's just going to supernaturally occur, that everything that you were taught as a child is going to be revealed to you as these things are right and these things are wrong? Okay, so then what's the, what, would be the ne- what would be our next step? Okay, so read the book. What were you saying? Okay, so study and ask questions. You said you talk to other people. Study, study the word of God. Okay, but, but where do I start? If I'm sitting, right, I'm not, not trying to like be devil's advocate, but kind of am. Like if I, talk to me like I'm a non-believer or talk to me like I'm a baby Christian. Like where do I go, guys? What, what do I do? Like I, I want to know if what I was taught was true. I, I was talking to Kim 
uh, I believe earlier today, and there have been so many things over the last 10 years of my life that I've had to relearn or, or think differently about because the more that I've studied the Word of God, I'm like, man, my entire childhood was a lie. I was taught this, and that's not true. And I was taught that, and that's not true. And I was taught this, and that's not true. And I, I begin to realize that people that were pastors in my lives were twisting and manipulating scripture to fit their agenda that they wanted the church to follow. And so right, there, are, there, are so many, uh, there are so many people here in our community that are de-churched people. So people that have left churches, not just because of church offense, but because they learned one thing and then someone else came in and said something different and they were offended and gone. So they're de-church. So people who are not attending church any sort of regularity. In fact, uh, my wife and I, in the last two weeks, in the last 14 days, we've run into four different families that I knew, that I knew were regular church attenders that are no longer attending church regularly, and they all had similar instances. Someone said this. It was not what I was taught. So instead of doing the work to check it out, they just left, and they never got plugged back in at another church. And so you're talking four, that's, that's eight people, just husbands and wives, four, four different families that we've talked to in the last eight or two weeks. So, yeah. Sure. Yes, we are told. Sure. So they don't, but when you, yeah, you mean, but that's not sin. That's sin to you. Right. But it's not sin to me. Which goes back to the whole, the movement also of relativism, right? That's, that's your truth, and this is my truth. Which is the scare. Right, which is the scary thought, right? We, we looked back in chapter one. No man is without excuse. No man is without excuse. And so, Right, so how do we overcome those things, right? Because, I mean, from, from this perspective, um, as, a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, it can be discouraging, can it not? Yeah. I mean, when was it, like, think back to a time where you had a God-appointed opportunity to share the gospel with someone, and 
you were like, man, the Spirit's moving, and you started to share, and that person just shut you right down. You ever have that happen to you? Man, how does that feel when someone's like, yeah, not for me? Like, nope, right? Right. Yeah. And yay for you. But what happens if we come to the end of our lives and I was right? Sure. We don't get another chance to. So it leaves it leaves spots. It C.S. Lewis says something along those lines. Like if if me following Christ uh, is wrong at the end of my life, he said that I'm the only one damned to hell. But if, if everybody else is wrong, then guess who's standing in the glory of God? He's like, I am. Right. Right. So, so what, what could we tangibly take away from these first three chapters? Because if, if we miss Paul, chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, if we miss that chunk, huge chunk of Scripture, we miss what Paul called the gospel of Jesus Christ. We miss it. He didn't touch justification and being saved by grace through faith until the last 12 verses of these first three chapters. So what can we take away? What can we take away? And and after what can we take away, how does that impact the way that we view other people around us? Yeah, agreed. Totally agreed. We've been given an amazing gift. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Something struck me. Uh, yes, right. It, it, it brings about a level of humility uh, in man. Uh, I went to the Gideon's dinner last night and their speaker um, was talking about different ways that ministry has impacted communities and, and jails and schools. And, and something that he said triggered uh, something in my memory that uh, uh, my buddies and I used to say in Florida when we would gather, we had a, a small group of guys that used to meet and study the Word of God together and pray for one another. And um, the guy said something very specific, and it, it just triggered all of those memories. And it, this very thought, um, my wife and I joke about this, but it's very serious for us uh, in a sense. But we ha- we do something uh, my wife and I sit down um, at night, and it's our time after the kids are in bed, and um, we talk to each other about about our day, and not just menial, uh, surface level, like, I went to the office, and I read my Bible, and I studied. The, I'm not talking about, and though those things come up, we're not talking about, like, what the kids ate for lunch, you know, we sit down and, and we ask each other, like, how are you doing? What's going on in, in your, your spiritual life? What are you studying right now? What are you getting from the Word of God? How can I better pray for you? And one of the things that we, we do for each other as a, an act of accountability 
um, my wife will come to me or I will go to my wife and, and I'll say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. And she's like, well, did you forget that you're a dirtbag? And that, it may seem funny um, and silly, but it's true. I must, I, I'm not saying dwell on my depravity and my sinfulness, right? J- just like you. I would never tell you to dwell on your sinfulness. But we must remember that we're still a sinner, that we are still in need of God's grace. Because if we forget our need of God's grace, we become like the Jonas. We, we become like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other religious leaders. I mean, we become the people who don't want to give grace. Like, that's, that's all of us. And I'm not trying to be offensive to you, but church, we're, we're all dirtbags. Like, all of us together. We can be dirtbags in Christ together, but that's, that's what, yeah, go ahead. Sure, sure. And I, I love the, that, I love that word, maintenance, um, the adjusting process in one's life. Um, I've never thought about it in that term. I always have always looked at it like this is my spiritual connection with my spouse. We're, we're constantly talking about spiritual things. And, and it doesn't matter what it is. Even if it is about our kids, it's something that's spiritual because guess what? I've, I've been gifted um, our children and God is looking at how I steward that, that gift. All four of those blessings, both boys, both girls. And, and so every aspect of our life, uh, whether we have a spouse or young children or grown children or grandchildren, uh, or, or no children, um, or no spouse. Um, every element of our life it has spiritual aspects. Why? Because we are intermingled with God. And if we don't see our life um, in that way, we won't, we won't share the gospel. And we won't, we won't point people to Christ. We won't remember uh, our depravity and in turn our need for God. And so how, does, how do those things impact or affect the way that we view other people? How does that affect the way that we view people? Sure. Well, then I guess maybe I would just leave leave you with this thought do i see people in in terms of their standing before god i'm sorry why Okay. Paul, for the last three chapters, looked at every man in respect to his standing before God. And yet, 
books later called himself the chief sinner. Not saying that you're wrong, I'm just I'm throwing out there, like that's what he's done for three chapters. That's exactly what we've seen. That's why I asked the question. Does anyone else want to add to that? Because I hear what you're saying. Sure. Right. Correct. And my my question is not to say that we are better. My question is, is there an urgency in us because we see people in regards to their standing before God? Because if I walk out that door and I know that that person out there is, is damned to hell right now, does it cause me to want to share the hope that I have? Because if it doesn't, then am I truly following God? Because I've been commanded by Christ to share the gospel. And if I'm not sharing the gospel, am I recognizing that that brother or that sister or that child or that teenager or that senior that's standing outside that I come across is on their way into the arms of Satan. And if that doesn't move within us, then can I truly say that I'm following Jesus? That, that's my challenge. Like that, that's, go ahead. Sure. But if I see someone as seeking to stand before God urgently for souls, they will just be lost. Mm. So I do want to see them that way. Not as does that suit me, makes me any better. I want to see them that, you know, if if they're not saved, they they would receive God's wrath if they were in a car accident or and not saved. So Sure. Which just goes back to our need of speaking the gospel to ourselves. Go ahead.
Good. Listen, if, if we share truth and hearts get changed, um, that's, that's a win for the kingdom just as much as it is if we're rejected because of Christ's name. But those, those two things, those are still kingdom wins if we see lives changed or if we're rejected for the name of Christ. Um, and we should never, ever think of, of which, I mean, you're saying, like, there's a possibility of rejection. And in what I've seen more often than not, people won't share the gospel because they're afraid of that rejection. I'm afraid I'm going to be rejected. Or I wouldn't know how to handle that rejection. Or what if they ask me a question, right, and I don't know how to answer it? Well, then what? Then do, does it make me look like I'm not a good Christian? <laughs> You know, are we, we get into our head um, in, in these types of situations, which to share with you, and if you have to go, you can go. But the reason, the whole entire reason that we launched Bible study on Wednesday nights, the whole purpose behind the Revelation study, behind the Roman study, was to equip the church for the work of ministry. The whole purpose. And this here is our training ground for the work out there. It's the training ground. And so these discussions and these questions and these chapters and all of these things are to help us to think differently about our culture. To think differently about the Word of God. Why? Well, because the Word of God is active and it's alive. And you could read the same portion of Scripture 500 times and you could get 500 different applications out of it. Why? Because it's alive and because God is still moving. And so when we look at Scripture and we look at it from a, a biblical standpoint and we look at the actual truths of what we're taught, it, it should challenge us to want to be different. It should challenge us to want to grow. It should challenge us to want to change. It should challenge us to want to share with people out there. Listen, I'm not standing before you or sitting before you telling you that I'm the best at sharing the gospel and I share the gospel every single day of my life because I don't always get opportunities to do that. But whenever I have an opportunity, I want to say something to somebody. Even if I don't, I don't even get to walk all the way through the plan of salvation, I want to tell somebody about Jesus. And to be 100% honest with you, that became more and more real in my life the last six months. I think a lot of time, ministry was just, I got to get my tasks done. I got to get my tasks done. I got to get my tasks done. And these last six months, I've wanted to invest, like God has done something within me to want to invest more and more and more into the lives of people. And I'm asking, I'm asking you as a church, like, come with me. Like, come, come on with, like, we're going on 16 months together here at the church. And I know it's been a rocky road 
for several of those months. And there were so many changes and people leaving and new people coming and new leadership. And that's, that's okay. Why? Because God has continued to receive his glory. His name is still going forth. Truth is being spoken. People's lives are being changed right here in this building. And if you're not seeing it, open your eyes. Open your eyes, church. Uh, there, are, there are people today that come to our church that barely understood Scripture a year ago. And they're diving in. And I'm getting the, the Facebook message and the emails and the text messages have changed from being constant complaints or criticisms to questions. They've changed. So people are growing. God's, God's moving in people. But we can't, we can't just keep that to ourselves. Now, now it's like we're coming to the point where like the new birth is about to happen. Like things, things, things have got to begin to change in us a little bit further so that we begin to see people differently. We begin to, to hear what people are saying. We begin to see the, the hurt and the lost and the struggling. And we're like, come in. Come be a part because I love you. But I, I love you enough to not want you to stay where you're at. I love you enough to bring you along with me. And we don't all have to be at the same place spiritually. I'm not asking for you to, to be at the same place as some of our leaders are or myself or your spouse. I'm just asking for all of us to be headed in the same direction, closer to Christ. So...